Hi, I'm Sarah Jenner. And I'm Mary Ann Baton, and you're listening to Conversations with Impact. Every month, we chat with a new expert speaker about different workplace challenges and how to overcome them. The purpose of these conversations is to share insights and solutions to challenging topics. And have a positive impact on our guests who attend. We also highlight a charity that's doing incredible work. Thanks for being here, and let's get started. Hello, hello, hello. For Marianne and Deborah joins us, I would love to introduce Deborah to all of you. So Deborah is a registered marriage and family therapist with the Canadian Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. And she is joining us. Um, she is a family therapist. Hey, hello. <laughs> Just introducing Deborah. Um, so Deborah is a family therapist at Canuck Place Children's Hospice, and it's BC's leading pediatric palliative care facility. And in her role there, she really supports family who um, are dealing with their dealing with um, receiving news that their child has received a, a life limiting diagnosis. So she works there with families to support them on their grief journey. And then she also has a private practice where she supports individuals, couples, and families as well. Hello, Marianne. How are you? I'm great, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm so excited for our conversation today. I know um, you weren't able to join us when I was speaking with Deborah, but each time I talked to her, I had scheduled like half an hour to speak with her. And it always turned into like an hour and a half conversation because she, she's just so fascinating. She has a way of speaking of grief in, in terms that make it so digestible. And oh, I just, it, she just creates this incredible connection. She's really brilliant at what she does. And I've already tried to convince her to write a book for us. <laughs> Do you know I, what Deborah makes me think about is the yeah. Dalai Lama saying, if you really want to enjoy life, then you need to meditate on death. And anybody mm -hmm. who is dealing with the limitations that life has, I think they think more about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Hello. How are you, Marianne and Sarah? So lovely to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's so great to see you. We're so, I was just telling Marianne how excited and thrilled I am to have you join us and how every time I speak with you, I just like, I don't want it to end. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's great as you're a therapist. So that's pretty important in your line of work. <laughs> well, I appreciate your generosity in saying that. That's very kind. I acknowledge that in both of my professional spaces, whether it's my private practice or my work at Connect Place, I just feel really strongly. I often say I'm kind of a one person mission to um, have us talk about grief and loss. I think it's it's some of the most important work we do as humans and it's not something that we do a very good job at. And I am delighted that you invited me and to kind of visit with you a bit around that. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here. This this idea really came from speaking with your colleague, Catherine Gordon at Canuck Place. And <laughs> we were chatting about how, how many people have experienced grief in some way, especially yeah. over the last 18 months and how it's really opened my mind to the idea that grief is just 
Grief is not only caused through the loss of someone we cared about, but there are so many different, um, different triggers for grief. And I was wondering if you could maybe go into some of the life experiences or challenges that people might deal with that could really cause them to experience grief and loss. Yeah, thanks so much for that question. I think it's it's insightful. It kind of lets us set the table, if you will, for what we need to talk about today. And as we kind of settle in the chair and think about that, I, I think that grief comes dressed as many clothes and we minimize it in our culture because we're not we don't always recognize it when it arrives. And it's really common for me to go, oh, I wonder if you're grieving because grief arrives when a longing is unfulfilled. Grief arrives when expectations aren't met. Grief arrives when something that we wish for either doesn't occur and we have to navigate the disappointment or something that we really value is taken from us. And we think of grief with, re with regards to death, which obviously it lives front and center in that story. And yet um, it, it, the pandemic I think has illustrated for all of us the opportunity to really um, sit with the fact that there've been many, many losses and nobody I know enjoys being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And grief by virtue of being grief is uncomfortable. I think what is a bit of a surprise to people is to recognize that if we love, we grieve. And if we mm -hmm. love deeply, we grieve deeply. And we don't recognize that grief is just that. It's love after loss. What a powerful thought. I, I was really um, excited about this conversation too, because I find grief is one of the hardest emotions for me to deal with both personally and when it comes to supporting others. Yeah. I know a couple years ago, I lost my uncle and we were very mm -hmm. lucky as a family to have been able to be together um, when he left us. And, but then life took over and I, from there in my hometown, came back to where I live. I hopped on a plane with Marianne the next day wow. to go to a week long conference. And I kind of just pushed it, pushed it, pushed it down because there were so many other things that were happening in life. And I remember I didn't truly grieve until almost five months later, where in my room, I have this uh, metal letter J that mm -hmm. both my uncle and my aunt gave me. Uh, just prior to that Thanksgiving, just before he passed, because uh, my last name's Jenner. And so they gave it to me and I was standing in my room with a friend and it fell off of my shelf onto the floor mm. and it just hit me like a truck. And I just remember this like emotional release mm -hmm. and that moment of like, wow, you have been taking up so much of your energy, not addressing this, not addressing what you're feeling, what's happening. So I would love to really tap into what are some ways we can support ourselves, Deborah, when we are grieving? It's a great question, Sarah. I think your story um, is a perfect illustration of the fact that grief waits for us mm -hmm. and it, it arrives um, unbidden and it sends messages, but it isn't going anywhere. It, and it, what's interesting about grief is that we somehow think 
we need to fix grief as if we're broken if we're grieving or that there's something wrong with us when actually grief is the kind of demarcation between the before and the after and coming to terms with the reality of the loss is the process and grief isn't to be fixed it's something to be tended to and it's something to process, but we can't process it if we're not able or willing to acknowledge it. And so I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that if we're human and we care about things, we're going to wrestle in the world of grief and loss. And it's hard for people to set the table for that reality, because that means that we're probably going to have moments of discomfort and that we're not actually, um, we might look at each other and say, I need you to help me fix this, but actually it isn't fixable. It's a matter of tending to it. It's a different quality altogether. And so people like to just, and find a way, all kinds of really interesting strategies people will do to divert from the reality of contending. And please hear me, I'm not suggesting that all distraction is bad. I often say what's gonna provide care and comfort, if it isn't life-threatening or morally threatening, I invite that, that is how we tend to our grief. But to turn away or deny or push down or avoid actually deprives us of our fulsomeness as humans because it is a part of recognizing that we need to acknowledge that something significant to us is now different. And it's almost, it's, there's almost a form of identity formation. Who am I now in light of this loss? I'm not going back to who I was before. So in light of this, where am I now? Who am I now? Who do I want to become? Um, not even so much what have I learned, uh, which puts pressure on us and so how we have to take a lesson from it, but it's almost introducing ourselves to ourselves once again. And yet, Deborah, I know that with my losses, what I find is really helpful for me is thinking about how I am a better person because of the person that I lost like yeah. you know so you're saying what did I learn but it's sort of how how can I honor them mm. by doing things but yet I know there's other types of losses for people where there's almost a sense of shame about the grief there's not the same support and I know at one time um, moms who had miscarriages often didn't talk about it if your family member died by suicide it's also more difficult Um, and family members who lost somebody from a homicide also have that really complex in in these situations Deborah what would be your advice I I think you're asking such an intriguing question, and I and um, I, I really want to honor all of those individuals that any of us could find ourselves in that place, unbidden, and and the grief is legitimate. And what does it mean to normalize and validate and legitimize that experience? However, um, to also recognize that we run up against stigma, we run up against the feeling of futility that we can't change we can't go back to what's happened before and when people are experiencing shame or guilt again this grief comes dressed as many clothes more often it's the person who is trying to um help the person i i i wonder if i could answer that question by coming at it a different way if we think about what our role is if someone is grieving 
what would it be like for us to consider that it's not our job to be a grief comforter, which means that we're helping the person feel better and we're putting them back into a place of ease, but that actually we're here to be a grief supporter in the sense that we've come along to help them while they find their way. And to be a comforter has a very different quality in how we navigate alongside someone than if we're here to support them. So if someone has experienced a homicide or a suicide or a miscarriage or a divorce or a pandemic loss or a loss of a job or a loss of a friendship or a loss of a pet or the loss of a relationship, like the list is endless. Are we so presumptuous that we somehow think we have the authority and audacity to step in and make that better? for that person to somehow comfort them. This is not a four-year-old with a skinned knee that we get to put a Band-Aid on and kiss it and make it all better. In fact, even at that, with a small child, we have to trust that their internal system is gonna be healing from within. We can put the Band-Aid on and offer comfort from without, but there's a certain measure that the healing has to also come from within the individual, even when they're little. But if we're willing to come in and support people who are grieving and make room to be with them, which is actually the most honoring thing you can do to offer presence and care, to give permission that they probably know best what's gonna be helpful and they're gonna tell you what isn't helpful. And we honor their autonomy to know who they are and what they need, even when they feel like they're in that storm of grief. And to recognize that it's gonna take far longer than we think it will. And when we're comforters, we feel good because we have provided and made it better. But if we're supporters, we actually might be uncomfortable right along with them while they're uncomfortable. So what we're willing to do is to step in with the person who's in discomfort and hold their discomfort with them, hold the space, make room for that, allow the container to be bigger. And I think that's the most honoring way we can show up for people. And I acknowledge there's no shame if we cannot. Let's acknowledge our own limitations as much as our capacity. I'm not asking us to be all things to all people. I'm really about care and preservation for everybody. But if we're coming into comfort, we're actually diminishing the significance of the loss. If we're coming in to support them, we're honoring, just as you say, how do we honor the person or the experience that they are grieving and allowing them to find their way through it? Does that answer your question? It, it absolutely does. It's And beautifully said too. I'm, I'm thinking about somebody I know lost a spouse mm. and heard from one person that, well, they also lost a spouse and they're, you know, fine now. They pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and they're right. enjoying life. And yeah. then they heard from somebody else whose spouse took to their bed and is just inconsolable. And both of those things made the individual feel that they were being judged as not doing it right. Hmm. And is there a right way to grieve? There's one of our societal myths. I would offer that for all three of those individuals, it's their way of finding their way through. And unless I come to this work with a lot of humility, unless we have walked in their shoes and experienced all that they've experienced, which has brought them to this moment and how that informs them, we're not in a position to tell them how it needs to go is if there's only a right way to grieve, there's your way to grieve, which might look different than Sarah's way to grieve, which may look different than my way to grieve and processing it in ways that are providing the support and allowing for the healing to occur 
because what we're doing is coming to terms with the reality of the loss, allowing ourselves to experience the feelings associated with that loss, integrating that loss into our story now as we move forward, hopefully with the richness and wisdom that we gain. But again, it's not a comfortable process and nobody I know likes to do it, which is why we've gotten really skilled at dressing it up and using euphemistic terms and people fall asleep or pass away they don't, as opposed to talking about the reality that someone has died or that we turn away and want people to feel better and find all kinds of interesting ways to have them not think about it. Grievers don't have to worry about being reminded that they are thinking about it every minute of the day. They're processing, trying to find their way. And, and we honor them by allowing them to be where they are and trusting that we can walk our way home together. I love the way you describe that as instead of being a comforter to be a supporter. I know I really struggled with supporting people through grief. And in our first conversation together, just talking that through with you, I recognize that um, my struggle I think truly came from the idea of if I get too close to their pain, that I'm opening up the opportunity that I too will experience that like excruciating mm -hmm. sense of loss and pain. And it really is a way to recognize that um, you can be there holding space with them, but you, without necessarily having to feel those, those same feelings you can be there as a supporter and have an impact on them and their journey without having to also um have that fear of taking taking on that pain too yeah and i think that witnessing suffering is hard work mm -hmm. um we suffer with people that forbearing that wonderful word that people don't use anymore but to be willing to bear with I often say what people say, what do you do for a living? Well, I kind of do withing. I kind of come along and I'm with people while they're while they're working their way through the journey. But there's a there's a piece of that. I honor the hesitancy and the fear. And I I hope I hope you hear this, Sarah, as respectful because that's my intent. Mm -hmm. There is there is no shame in recognizing your hesitancy to not feel uncomfortable. That's a human mm -hmm. response that none of us like to feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. and yet if we recognize that the person who is grieving probably doesn't want to be alone in their discomfort and what it can mean to companion and offer presence as we're able to support and bear with how reassuring what our neuroscience tells us which i find really fascinating is that if we are able and willing to turn to each other in that genuine human to human encounter we have a belief that somehow we're going to empty out our own well that we're going to be left it's like love that's why i talk about grief and love because our love expands and if we're willing to offer ourselves in a loving genuine authentic way to someone else and they're able to receive it in that reciprocal way both the giver and the receptor are supported and there's something very profound almost sacred i i, I tend to to find that a, a really significant profound place to be um but again it's uncomfortable so if we're saying well i need to not be uncomfortable that magnetizes us into wanting to fix it so that i'm not uncomfortable so that you're not uncomfortable so that we can actually 
um, all feel better because that seems best. Mm. And we, it, it, that kind of ties into our societal myth that all of us as humans wrestle with over how much agency, how much control do we have over this story. And sometimes unbidden, in spite of all the best intent and all the best choices, we bump up against the futility, the helplessness, the fact that it doesn't actually result in the outcome we desire. And we have to reckon with that. And because people find that difficult, the grievers report over and over how they've noticed this turning away and at a time when they are most vulnerable and in need of care. There's a little aloneness and a sense of isolation that not only do they not get it, they're not interested in trying to get it. Mm. And do we need to understand in order to care? What would it look like for us to care? Speaking to that, we had a question come in um, asking about how could you support someone who's unable to move forward and really cannot focus on anything but the grief they're experiencing? Mm, yeah, and and I'm curious um, when I hear that question, what moving forward would look like mm. and, and what it means to the individual to witness the inability to move forward and how hard it is and to recognize how big that grief is and how hard it is to trust that if and when that person's able, they will bring in other things. But right now the grief is so big. And please don't hear me suggesting that I want us to um, only focus on the losses to the fact that I'm wanting us to be reductive. I'm actually wanting us to expand, to recognize the inclusivity of the fact that this loss, if it is significant, is probably permeating every aspect of our lives. People believe that loss is kind of a slice of pie. You've got your work and your family and your professional life and your fun times and we'll just, oh, I'm grieving. Well, I better have a slice for that. But actually grief is the top and bottom crust. It impacts everything. It's that identity formation. Who am I now? as a professional, who am I now as a human? Who am I as a mother? Who am I as a sibling? Who am I as a daughter? Who am I in relationship? There's a, there's a sense of needing to reintroduce ourselves in light of this loss, depending on what it is. It shakes mm -hmm. our foundation in terms of how we understand the world. And it takes a lot of time to recalibrate that. And it's as unique as the individual. Some people, as you said, Marianne, move along and pull themselves up by the bootstraps and are going to move forward and may grieve instrumentally and need to do that by action and be moving through and to suggest they're not grieving is a misnomer. Others are quite intuitive and they need to pull in and reflect and consider. And in the same way that the world is made up of introverts and extroverts and we don't shame one or the other, there are any number of ways to work through our grief. So it can be really inconvenient if somebody is grieving, it gets in the way of the schedule and it absolutely impacts the tone of the conversation. Um, that's what makes it hard. I do wonder if, like you had said, that idea of sometimes this loss can create such a change or a shift or evolution in identity mm -hmm. that as someone watching this individual change, we are now not only possibly grieving that initial loss, but now also the loss of who this person once was, that they are different now. And now there's this, as Marianne had said, there's this like comparison of, well, I'm dealing with it this way and you're dealing with it completely differently. And there's 
some sort of like disconnect there. Yeah. And, and again, mm -hmm. there's that assumptive as if somehow there's a manual that there's a right way to grieve. I have a lot of respect for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, seminal work on what is called the five stages of grief. And I'm so aware that it's been hijacked as if somehow it's become a manual that we have to go through this, whether it's a linear way or these are all the things we have to feel. That not only isn't how she intended it in her work, but it actually, um, she herself would offer that it's been hijacked in the process mm -hmm. that we, but we have adopted it because it feels very much like this checking off of a box. It's things to do. And if we check off the box, again, it's like the comforter. Oh, someone has died. Well, let's see, did I send the flowers? Did I go to the funeral? Did I offer a card? I was really generous. I made a casserole, check, check, check. My work here is done. That provides, all of those things are comforting and I, I don't want to diminish the significance. All of those can be very meaningful. In, in the life of a griever. But what does support look like? It's probably gonna take more than just that. This person is in need of care and it's not linear. And it's probably as surprising and unsettling to them as much as it is for us to witness. And if any of us who have experienced grief know, just as you name, you watch that J fall over and the reality of that loss for you as you consider the sad reality that your uncle is no longer here and you loved him and you miss him keenly. And you come around to another Thanksgiving in this season of the year and your body remembers what time it was when you experienced that loss and you process and you revisit this. Who am I now in light of this? And it's almost, a, it becomes a marker in your story of before and after. We're not mm -hmm. gonna change that. And yet how do we love and honor this uncle and share um, all the wonderful things and think warmly of him. And every time you consider him, he's with you because he's tucked safely in your heart, not as you wish he would be, but in ways that can still be rich and meaningful and inform. It takes way longer than we wish it would. And it's, I know you're going to get tired of me saying it, but it's hard. Hard is not a criteria in the work of grief. Deborah, I wonder if you can speak to something that people who have been through multiple losses may experience the fact that you have a loss that is not at all related and yet it's like every other loss comes up again that's right that's exactly right and i think that's such an insightful reflection marianne because it brushes up against all those other losses and the feelings of experiencing loss Again, we are informed by that. Well, we also acknowledge that each loss is its own distinct experience. And um, if we have not tended well to the initial grief and loss, we have more work to do now. It can become kind of exponential, just like our love can become exponential. And yet, if we have grieved well, we may well be able to draw from that wisdom in terms of knowing who we are and what helps us and what supports we need and putting in place um, how we're going to find our way through. But you're exactly right. It's not, well, this is this and that is that. Um, we're hardwired as human for relationship. And if we love deeply, we're going to grieve deeply. Mm -hmm. You had talked before about the idea of when we are supporters being there and um, trying to provide that 
that care that someone needs as they're going through their grief, how, how do we start that conversation of finding out what it is that they need? I think that can be such a tough um, question to maybe ask or get started. And what, what kind of questions would you use? Hmm. I, I hear such intent to show up in that question and I think it's that authenticity is what you bring to the table when you support someone who's grieving to literally check in and I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you and I'm curious what would be most supportive and I want you to know that I care and I wonder how that would look to you. It's the whole check in, offer care and support, repeat. It's kind of that, that it's, it seems very simple, but it's, it's presence, it's availability, and it's inviting them um, that they might be the experts of their own stories. Mm -hmm. and, and they may well say, I don't know. I'm experiencing the lostness. They may go, what's wrong with me? I'm so angry. Grief comes dressed in many clothes. Someone said to me yesterday, I'm just numb. I can't feel anything. I've completely shut down. Where have I gone? If I open that up, I'm never coming out. Mm -hmm. There is kind of this belief that big feelings are like caves and we go into them with, we don't go there. There are snakes and bats and things we don't like unless you're an epidemiologist and you love all those creatures and that we're never coming out and it's really scary. But actually there is, your title is brilliant, swimming in grief's waves. There's a movement we are mammals were deciding to oscillate through the big feelings of emotion and allowing ourselves more like a tunnel of working our way through that. Um, as humans, we're not designed to be awake 24 hours a day and we're not designed to sleep 24 hours a day. There is this wave that we move through and grief is like waves. Um, there is this pounding in of, of people feeling just pounded to the shore with a big wave. How do we them, um, we invite, we offer presence, we don't assume we know. And we ask them, would it be okay with you if you don't know today, if I come back next week and ask again? Mm -hmm. I'm not just going to trust that you're going to reach to me because that might be too much effort for you. I see you and I care. And would it be all right with you if I come back and ask again? And then maybe the next week. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. One of the questions I ask is um, walk me through how you're feeling through the days right now. And you get so much from them um, right. about what they're dealing with that you then can say, oh, sounds like you could use mm -hmm. this kind of help. Yeah. If they're saying, you know, I just, I can't do the grocery shopping or yeah. I go to cook and I, it's overwhelming and I sit down and you can just mm -hmm. learn from them what's difficult. Yeah. How can I help is, is a brilliant question. And Marianne, I love that. I love the curiosity in inviting them to tell you what's going on and then listening well. That's what presence is, is, is being available to let them hear and then inquire. Would that be helpful? Is that, is that useful if I did that? Would that, again, that sense of permission, that choice has never mattered more than when you're grieving. Mm. Because the world feels so completely out of control, you're already feeling so helpless, that it can be 
energizing to have someone come and direct or dictate how this is going to go now. That helplessness can be assuaged if we give people choice. So Deborah, you deal with what um, almost every parent would say is their worst nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. Being told that their child has a terminal illness. That's right. Can you help us understand in those situations how you're able to with be withing with them yeah. uh, at a time when I think most of us would be frantic looking for answers and we might miss out on the opportunity to experience a loving relationship with our child. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that I can acknowledge that the death of a child is one of the most traumatic losses that anyone can experience. Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely a moment of before and after. And grief begins at diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what's fascinating. That's true if we're journeying in the world of dementia and, and we're not dealing with small children, but we're dealing um, with the fact that we're, we're there's, there's a lot of parallels actually in the world of dementia and, and the world of a life-limiting diagnosis, regardless of age. Um, I, it is common for me to come in and introduce myself and, and slide in on, on the bottom floor kind of thing. Um, I do a lot of listening, just what you asked. I, I want to know who this family is. I want to know what matters to them. I want to know how they express their love to one another. I want to know what's significant. Um, and, and I find myself just acknowledging, leaning into the fact that we all wish this was going to be different than it is. And we wonder what might happen um, and how this will go. And we wonder what worries you might have. And we're curious about what you're needing. And I, I'm wondering if I, how, how powerless you might be feeling when you're when you're dealing with the belief for a parent who is absolutely, as you say, frantic, trying to find an answer. Well, we need to make room for that. They are protesting, as all good grievers do, that no, 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 we're not ready for the futility moment. We're still trying to find another answer. Our brains are hardwired that way. I make room for that. We. Our brains love patterns and every griever I know goes through this in their cognitive process of reviewing the data, trying to come up with another outcome because what currently is coming to the fore is not an acceptable outcome. So we need to allow for that. While we also know instinctively that other aspects, whether it's our body or emotion, we're whole people and we grieve as whole people. And so we need to bear with all the aspects someone is. We have to make room for the protest. But it's common for me, Marianne, to say, you know, I wish I were powerful enough. I wish that I had a magic wand and I could change this diagnosis. And I know that I don't hold the power of life and death in my hand. None of us do. It's not up to us. And this child, this sweet child is doing all they can. Their little body is fragile. And it isn't this child's fault and it isn't your fault and it's not something you've done and it's not anybody's fault and it's not okay there's a certain injustice to this we're not supposed to outlive the babies 
So we protest big time. But when I ask, so in the midst of this huge moment, while we acknowledge that that is there and we may have to process it, I'm curious what you would hope for in this moment, if that were through, what that would, what you would hope for. And it's fascinating to me, Marianne, people always know, oh, well, we need the dog here. We need to be sure that we have time to do this event, or we actually just need to be close. We need these people here, or sometimes we need these people not here. <laughs> there are certain things, and, and, and people inevitably have that sense of what would provide some measure of care and comfort. And we meet people there. We are present to that. And, and regardless of where we are, it's that same invitation that you talk about when you say, tell me how it's going day to day. It's, it's actually fairly similar to that. We had another question come in, Deborah, um, from a participant. When a child experiences trauma, PTSD, yeah. later diagnosed as an adult, and the body keeps score, creating functional neurological symptoms, are there strategies you'd recommend? Can you read that again? That's big. Yeah. Or maybe I should go back and try and read it myself. I, I was trying desperately to okay. That felt like a big question and I want to honor it. Thank you for asking whoever did that. So when a child experiences trauma, and it seems like in the question, it's later diagnosed as an adult as PTSD, okay. um, and the body keeps score, creating yeah. functional neurological symptoms. So they're experiencing these symptoms later yeah. as an adult. Yeah. Are there strategies you'd recommend to help oh, them with that? Yeah, thank you for that question. And thank you for reading it again, Sarah. Um, let me demonstrate my own humanity that while I was trying to take that in, I was trying to process, no, just listen to him. Just listen to that question. <laughs> Don't get ahead of yourself. Um, so thank you for allowing me to do that. I would invite um, whoever you are to find a really good trauma therapist. And as someone, not, not to toot a horn, but for those of us who are skilled and trained in the work of trauma, it is critical that you have someone who understands this journey. What I would offer to really normalize is that you have, if you have had an extraordinary experience and you are experiencing an extraordinary response, let's normalize that. And a good trauma therapist is going to normalize the extraordinary response. Grief waits for you. It's going to need to be processed. Trauma work is big work. I find it honoring, important, beautiful, hard work, but it's rich. And it's critical that we give people a path forward, that we are not defined by our worst moments of what has happened to us. Mm -hmm. We have an opportunity to be shaped and informed if we're willing to work through that process and find ways to navigate when those symptoms and experiences, it's a re-experiencing of the trauma. It's waited for us. And it gets to the place that it's now gonna show up in finding um, expression in ways that it leaks out. And, and I don't mean that in a critical way. It just is gonna demonstrate that I'm still here. I'm waiting, I, be present to me. Are you gonna pay attention? It needs care. So finding someone who is skilled in the work of trauma. Also, don't hesitate to surround yourself with people who can support you. I 
I make no apology for the fact that the circle of the five people who are closest in your lives need to be your supporters. And if they're draining your energy and making it harder for you to show up for yourself and each other, it's okay to provide a bit of buffer for your own preservation. Mm -hmm. um, it's essential that you get the care you need. That, if that doesn't answer, if you're welcome in, in following up on that. Mm -hmm. uh, someone else had also sent in that they're interested in hearing your response to how we deal with the guilt that mm -hmm. many grievers feel. I know when we had first talked, we talked about the idea of um, that guilt that can come from a sense of relief when there is loss, the idea that this individual is no longer suffering, yeah. but then the like guilt and shame that can follow that or that you might experience from others as well. I think it's such a fascinating question and, and it's big, but I'll see if I can. Um, I think if we, again, give permission to the fact that relief is a human response. We've established today, I don't know if everyone's agreeing with me, but we've est I've established and invited you to consider that nobody likes to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so it is hard to suffer and it is hard to witness suffering. And when that suffering is over, there is a certain measure of relief. That's a human response. It's actually very healthy. People want to pathologize that and assume that somehow it makes them a bad person, that maybe they don't care. And parents will say to me, is it okay that I'm just so relieved that my child isn't suffering anymore? And I will say, you are suffering now in missing them because they are not. That's what suffering love does. So allowing grief to be one of the expressions, allowing guilt to be one of the expressions of our grief, it comes dressed in those clothes. Shame for me is a whole different animal because shame is something that I think requires a lot of work around in terms of some of the messaging that we probably have taken in prior to this experience that now this isn't just i'm a good person who's done a bad thing we actually are i'm a bad person we've made it a character quality shame comes from an identity that we are now defined by this least adaptive helpful moment and we feel a certain sense of annihilation to ourselves. We're abandoning ourselves at a time when we actually really need care. And I would invite all of us to get busy about the work of how we're going to navigate. If shame's showing up, there's a sense that we're probably saying, I'm not okay the way I am. And one of my favorite grief books that I'm handing out to people is Megan Devine's book, you're, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Because it's not okay when you're grieving. And you don't feel okay when you're grieving. And if you're shamed about that, that is not comfort and it is not support and it actually doesn't move any of us along and what it does is it allows more precious things to be lost because we're breaking away from the connections that we so desperately need we're either sending messages of blame to others or internalizing shame in isolation and that just exasperates the suffering mm. so i invite work around that <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just have one final question. Uh, through this conversation, what we found is that grief is so subjective and that mm -hmm. there are so many different ways to grieve. Yes. Um, how as individuals do we advocate for ourselves to experience those feelings when it's not the traditional grief? So 
job loss, um, someone had sent in some other examples too. So there was the idea of job loss, of um, responsibilities, autonomy. When you and I spoke to uh, a lot of discussions that my friends and I are having right now, especially my girlfriends, is like loss of fertility, right. loss of pets. How do, we, right. how do we normalize having these feelings of grief and advocating for us to be able to experience that? Uh, well, that's that's the question. I that if you, that's that's my personal life work. That's what I'm on mission. So let's normalize this. And I would offer that this very um, webinar that you are doing today, this conversation is part of the way we do that. We need to normalize that this is a human experience, and that if we love, we grieve, and that if we're a human. We're going to experience loss and we have not nobody was handing out skills over how to navigate losses for most of us when we were growing up and so the more we become this swelling chorus to normalize and validate if we look at the world of fashion which seems like a complete right turn but we all live in different colored houses we all wear different style clothing we allow for the individuality of who we are as humans while we move through time but somehow, when we look at grief and loss, we come in with this normative, restrictive, one size fits all, this is how it is. And that doesn't work for people. And it's not actually authentic to the experience and it minimizes what we actually have available to us in learning how to incorporate all the wisdom that we gain from going through loss and how it can inform us. So allowing ourselves to acknowledge that my gray walls and your gorgeous navy walls which i really like by the way and and that gorgeous white couch that i wouldn't dare have in my home because my puppy would absolutely make it some other color before the day was over that it's all beautiful and rich and diverse and normal and valid and legitimate and how we can hold on to the reality of advocating for ourselves advocating for each other holding space making more room we start with making room for our own hearts we start with ourselves in gentleness and kindness and care which then allows us to turn to others with gentleness and kindness and care wow marianne did you have any uh questions you wanted to ask deborah not a question, just a statement. You do find the best guests, Sarah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I've already told Deborah that I fully encourage her to write some kind of book. I think that you just have such a way of um, making conversations around grief feel somewhat more comfortable. And mm -hmm. my takeaway has definitely been just meet people where they're at mm -hmm. and provide them with autonomy and ask questions. And if you can do those things, then you're already on the right track to trying to be a supporter rather than a comforter. Thanks, Sarah. I think it's hard to be curious and it's hard to be compassionate. And when Marianne named so beautifully the fact that every parent's worst nightmare is if a child dies, um, and whether it's a child or an adult, we put ourselves in the position of a griever and go, oh, I don't think I'd do very well if I was in that moment. And we forget 
how to be curious and we forget to show compassion and we forget to offer presence. We forget to be kind and caring. And I would invite us all to, as we're able to enlarge our own tent and make space to be caring to what's going on in our own hearts and the things that really matter and what works for us. And then also work to just make the container bigger for each other. It's been a privilege to be here today with you and I've enjoyed our visit so much. Thank you so much. Honestly, I'm already thinking we're going to have to slot you in for next year, too, because you have so much incredible information. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Marianne, for sharing your wisdom and your experience and your time with us today. I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad we could have the conversation and I hope I've planted the seeds and we all can, as we perk on that, we'll spread the care and learn to trust and blessings on you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, everyone.